0: Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine.
1: And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine.
0: Every fortnight we enter Room 106, the den of discomfort into which all new planning information is deposited, and extract the key things you need to know.
1: In this edition, the two parliamentary houses tussle over the final form of the levelling up and regeneration bill. We examine the key changes and ask how close the bill is to its likely final form.
0: Housing Secretary Michael Gove tells local authorities to carry on plan making and to be pragmatic in making decisions about schemes that do not conform to their plans. We'll explore the detail. Meanwhile,
1: the government's infrastructure advisor has published its latest assessment of the UK's infrastructure needs for the next 30 years. We'll find out what it has to say about planning.
0: And on top of all that, we'll also round up some of the other big news stories of the past fortnight. So, ready to go in? OK then. Well, here we are, back again in Room 106. Plenty of new paperwork seems to have been dropped in since we were last in here.
1: Yes, the legislation library is bursting at the seams. I think the latest amendments to the levelling up and regeneration bill are pushing its capacity to the limits. Who can we ask about all that?
0: Well, our senior reporter, Samantha Eckford, has been following the bill closely. Hello, Sam. Hi, Richard. So, Sam, can you start off by telling us what stage the bill's got to now?
2: Yes. So, known as ping pong, the bill is at the stage where it's between the House of Commons and the House of Lords, and they're tussling over these proposed amendments to the bill. The government's indicated that it wants to secure the Bill's royal assent before the King's speech on the 7th of November. So these two houses only have a limited time to agree on any uh, points of difference.
0: Now, last week, the government made some changes to the Bill. What exactly were those?
2: So the headline news was that the Commons blocked a clause added by the Lords, which would have made national development management policies subject to approval by both Houses of Parliament. So national development management policies are proposed to take over from local plan policies as the primary policy consideration when determining planning applications. Housing Minister Rachel McLean told the Commons that the government had heard the strength of feeling in both houses about the need for these policies to be produced transparently and had therefore strengthened the consultation requirements, but had not gone as far as accepting the Lord's proposed amendment. The government also blocked an amendment which would have allowed councillors to attend meetings and vote virtually with McLean saying that ministers hold the strong view that one of the core principles of local democracy is that citizens can attend council meetings. The government also said that it could not accept a Lords Amendment which would have allowed councils to impose flexible planning fees, as this would not answer resourcing issues and would not provide any incentive to tackle inefficiencies. Other planning-related amendments introduced by the Lords that the government said that it could not accept in the Commons include an amendment from Lord Ravensdale which would have required the Secretary of State to have regard to the mitigation of climate change in preparing planning policy, an amendment from Lord Crisp which established the Healthy Homes Principles and an amendment which would have told local planning authorities that they must not grant permission for residential properties to be built on functional floodplains or areas at high risk of flooding.
0: OK, so the Lords had a chance to debate these government changes earlier this week. Which of the government changes did they accept?
2: So, first of all, the um, government change on national development management policies stayed in the bill. Liberal Democrat peer Baroness Thornhill had proposed an alternative amendment that would have subjected the policies to upfront formal parliamentary oversight, which she said was supported by the RTPI, CPRE, um, and also by Labour. But this was rejected by peers, and so the Commons proposal was instead agreed.
0: And just to remind us, so that Commons proposal is for additional consultation than had originally been proposed by the government, but will not lead to full parliamentary approval being needed for these policies?
2: Yes, exactly that.
0: Okay. And, and what other government changes did the Lords accept?
2: So the Lords accepted the government's stance on the Lord Crisp's Healthy Homes um, Amendment, which would have established these healthy homes principles in the bill. And the Lords also accepted the Commons approach to planning application fees So although Liberal Democrat peer, Baroness Pinnock, had tabled an alternative amendment which had proposed that income from planning application fees could be varied in circumstances where the income does not meet the cost of the planning services, this was rejected by peers. Um, And so the Commons approach stands.
0: And the Commons approach, just to reiterate, is basically saying to councils, no, you can't have more flexibility to raise planning application fees according to how you see fit, the government will still set those fees? Yes. Okay. Anything else that the, uh, the, the, the Lords accepted in terms of the government changes?
2: Yes, the Lords accepted um, the Commons rejection of the amendment, which would have prevented authorities from being able to allow permissions for building on floodplains. So that
0: approach stands. Okay. So all those matters have now, it seems, been resolved for the moment at least. But there are still some areas of dispute where the Lords rejected the changes voted for by the Commons. So can you tell us about those?
2: Yes. So there are two key points of difference here. So the first is Lord Ravensdale's proposed amendment on climate change, which would require the Secretary of State to have regard to the mitigation of climate change when preparing planning policies. Lord Ravensdale proposed an alternative amendment in the Lords, which would have reversed the Commons rejection of this, and it was approved by uh, the House with Labour's full support. So that one will have to go back to the Commons. The second is on virtual meetings. So the Lords voted to approve an amended version of the Commons motion on virtual meetings, which states that a Minister of the Crown may, by regulations, establish arrangements, whereby in circumstances specified in those regulations, a meeting of a local authority is not limited to a meeting of persons all of whom are present in the same place. And this was agreed by the Lords. So this will go back to the Commons.
0: OK, so they've modified the proposal to basically, once again, try and enable virtual meetings to allow those to go ahead. The government's position is virtual meetings shouldn't be allowed when local authority meetings take place, and particularly, you know, for example, planning committee meetings. They must be in public so the public have a chance to attend. But the the Lords are trying to create the potential for virtual meetings to take place if local authorities see fit. Yes. Just sort of stepping back a bit and rewinding a bit, when the government made all these changes to the Lords' amendments, how were they received in the sector?
2: So the main bone of contention those in the sector seemed to have with what the government was proposing in the Commons was on national development management policies. So the CPRE said that the government had, and I quote, ignored the views widely held among parliamentarians and said that its changes effectively reverts the bill back to its original state. Similarly, Royal Town Planning Institute Chief Executive Victoria Hills said that the body was disappointed that these new policies were not likely to receive the same level of consultation as local plans and would not be scrutinised to the same degree as similar policies for nationally significant infrastructure. So this doesn't seem to be welcoming the government's approach on this.
0: I mean, these are going to be very important policies. Um, they're, they're setting development management policies across the country. As most of our listeners will know, the idea is that um, instead of every local authority coming up with its with its own individual development management policies on on every issue, that the national development management policies will create the scope for national policies to be created, thereby saving uh, uh, local authorities a lot of time. But of course it does centralize a great deal of development management policy making so um, anybody who's worried about that will would want the maximum level of scrutiny i suppose but clearly anyway that's not now going to happen or it doesn't look like it's going to happen because the lords have accepted that they're not going to get a, uh, a parliamentary scrutiny of those new policies and again just going back to that earlier debate when the government made clear that it was going to knock back many of the uh, of the, the Lord's amendments. What else do we learn from it?
2: So the key thing to highlight is that McLean said the government would bring forward the updated national planning policy framework as soon as the bill receives royal assent. So for those in the sector that have been waiting for this since the consultation on the MPPF was published last December, that may come as welcome news.
0: Okay, and just remind us when the bill is due to receive royal assent?
2: The government said that it wants it to receive royal assent before the King's speech on the 7th of November.
0: Okay, so the government is saying if the government holds to both bits of its timetable we should have a finalized version of the of the mppf revisions by early november
2: supposedly so yes
0: okay well thank you very much sam i fear there will be more amends in in the next couple of weeks so i will leave you here in the uh, in the legislation library and look forward to seeing you in room 106 again soon see you soon Okay, so the next thing we need to find out about is the National Infrastructure Assessment that was published recently by the um, National Infrastructure Commission, the government advisor. And to help us with that, I'm very pleased to say we've got the assistance of our reporter, Alex King. Alex, hello. Hi. Just
3: start off by telling us a bit about
0: what the National Infrastructure Commission is.
3: Well, as you mentioned, the National Infrastructure Commission is an independent advisor They provide the government with impartial advice on major long-term infrastructure challenges. And they advise government on all sectors of economic infrastructure defined as energy, transport, water and wastewater, waste, flood risk management and digital communications. It carries out in-depth studies into the UK's major infrastructure needs in these sectors and makes recommendations to the government.
0: But this assessment that they've just published... That's something that they only publish on a five-yearly basis, I think. So what's the purpose of this specific document that they've just produced, and and, and
3: what did they say in it? So in this National Infrastructure Assessment, which, as you say, they produce every five years, the NIC sets out its appraisals of long-term needs in the sectors it covers and makes recommendations to meet them, including the right policy, regulatory, and funding mechanisms, and this often encompasses planning. In its second National Infrastructure Assessment published last week, the NIC sets out recommendations for creating what it calls an effective planning system capable of delivering the infrastructure needed to tackle climate change, boost growth and increase climate resilience. The report highlights a need for significant public and private investment in infrastructure if the UK is to achieve all of this. For example, it's said that more than 17 new nationally significant electricity transmission projects would be required by 2030 to support electrification. The commission's analysis suggested that investment must increase from an average of around 55 billion per year over the last decade to around 70 to 80 billion per year in the 2030s and 60 to 70 billion per year in the 2040s.
0: And that figure relates to Infrastructure provision as a whole of of that scale, that kind of nationally significant infrastructure?
3: Correct, yes. So, public sector investment alone would need to rise from 20 billion per year over the last decade to around 30 billion in the 2030s and 40s, while private sector investment would need to increase from around 30 to 40 billion to 40 to 50 billion in the same time period. And crucial to unlocking this investment in infrastructure and delivering it will require transformational change to planning, the NIC said in the assessment. A planning system that embeds the principles of pace, certainty, flexibility, and quality decisions is needed to facilitate delivery and increase the level of private sector investment required over the coming years, the NIC said in its report.
0: Okay, and when it's talking about electrification and this being the key step change that's needed for which we need certain kinds of infrastructure, Specifically the thing you're highlighting, that the 17 new sort of major power line projects, which of course are going to be a a major planning challenge, um, bringing those in from the... Well, uh, certainly a lot of them are required from the east side of the country to bring in all that, uh, the electricity generated by, by offshore wind power. When they're talking about that kind of electrification, what kind of changes is that electrification going to enable?
3: I think what they're getting at here is, as you say... The electrification of domestic heat and electricity generation. And as you say, particularly in places like Norfolk and Suffolk, where there's going to be big offshore wind generation that needs to come onshore, it's going to require the speeding up of energy infrastructure projects, particularly. And that's actually something else that the, um, that's actually something else, sorry, I've gone off piste a bit here, but there's actually something else that the NIC recommends was calling for the government to develop a framework of direct benefits for local communities and individuals where there are hosting types of nationally significant infrastructure, such as onshore wind and battery energy storage and all those sorts of projects.
0: So a key thing about this is that I suppose lots of this um, renewable energy, uh, these cleaner sources of uh, of energy, which we need to start using in the UK in order to hit our carbon cutting targets and other environmental goals, they're going to require quite a lot of heavy duty infrastructure in order to enable them to, uh, to work. And you've made the point that they're saying planning needs to change to enable this kind of acceleration of um, infrastructure provision to happen. So how does the commission in the assessment propose making the planning system more effective?
3: Well, first, it found that the nationally significant infrastructure project planning regime had Quote, worked well initially. However, since 2012, consenting times had increased by 65%, moving from 2.6 to 4.2 years on average. And the rate of judicial review had spiked in recent years to nearly 60% from a long-term average of 10%. So one of its key recommendations was on updating national policy statements for the government to introduce a system of modular updates to national policy statements linked to primary or secondary legislation, to ensure clarity on how future legislative changes related to national policy statements.
0: And these national policy statements, these are the government policy statements for how planning should work for particular types of infrastructure, such as roads, railways, energy,
3: et cetera, et cetera. Correct, yeah. Um, Aviation, sectors like that, really critical infrastructure. Elsewhere, the report called for what it called a central coordination and oversight mechanism to be developed by the end of 2023 reporting to the Prime Minister or the Chancellor, with measurable targets for reducing consenting times for nationally significant infrastructure projects. It also recommended that the government introduce legislation by 2025 to make at least five yearly reviews of the national policy statements for energy, water resources and national networks a legal requirement to speed up decision making.
0: Okay, because many of these national policy statements they're supposed to have been when they were were created, the idea was that they would be reviewed every five years, but Many of them are long
3: overdue for review. I think so. I think in some instances, some of them haven't been updated since um, 2012. In other news, the NIC recommended that providing social, economic or environmental benefits at the local level as well as national level could improve community trust in the planning system, which could in turn reduce the risk of legal challenge to energy infrastructure schemes the commission called for the government to develop a framework of, quote, direct benefits for local communities and individuals where they are hosting types of nationally significant infrastructure, which deliver few local benefits by the end of 2023.
0: So both government and the opposition have talked quite a lot about infrastructure planning in recent weeks and months. How does what the commission is saying differ from what the government has been saying its plans are for for infrastructure? I mean, what's... Are there areas where they're actually singing from the same hymn sheet?
3: I think so, yeah. Uh, the government is currently in the process of consulting on updating some national s- policy statements and emphasising community and environmental benefits of hosting certain infrastructure schemes. So it consulted on nationally significant infrastructure on the 25th of July, and that proposed slashing the time it takes for projects to be greenlit, streamlining the current system, and establishing a new fast-track route to planning approval for projects that provide community and environmental benefits. The government also sought views on the details to the operational reforms which it's looking to make to the nationally significant infrastructure project's consenting process. That consultation shut on the 19th of September, and we're waiting on the government's response to that.
0: And what about what the opposition has been saying about infrastructure planning?
3: Well, we had Labour Party conference earlier this month And their shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, made a speech. Labour were briefing journalists prior to this conference speech that Labour would make a commitment to getting national policy statements updated within six months of forming a government. Reeves didn't actually end up saying anything on the subject. But it does seem like something that's being considered within the Labour Party, for sure.
0: I mean, there seems to be complete consensus, doesn't there, that something needs to be done to make these reviews of of national policy statements happen regularly, happen once every five years. I guess the problem is there's never been any disagreement about that. Everybody agrees with that in theory. It's that just the practical difficulty of nailing for a government to nail its colours to the mast and say, this is what needs to be done in terms of planning for infrastructure. And, And I wonder whether governments going forward are going to find it something that they are going to continue to want to kick into
3: the long grass, but uh, let's hope not. What happens next with this assessment? It's a good question. So the government is required to respond to the assessment. According to an update to the National Infrastructure Commission framework document in October 2021, the government will respond, quote, as soon as practicable, unquote, endeavouring to respond within six months and not longer than a year. So we can expect a response by October 2024. The framework also goes on to say that the response will set out clearly any further work required to take forward those recommendations. And any recommendations the government does agree with will become what's known as endorsed recommendations, which then become statements of policy.
0: Fantastic. So we'll either know that these recommendations have turned into government policy or that they've been, re- been rejected, hopefully within a, a year or so.
3: Correct. Yeah, should we should have a response by October twenty twenty
0: four. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Alex. I'll leave you here exploring the uh, the assessment in more detail, and look forward to seeing you in Room one hundred six again soon. Bye. Okay. Well, turning back to you, John. You've been looking at this letter that Michael Gove sent last week to local authorities. What exactly was in this letter and why did Gove send it?
1: So the letter was sent from Michael Gove to all council leaders and chief executives of local authorities in England. In the letter, Gove said he wanted to highlight the principal elements of the government's long-term plan for housing, which was a series of planning announcements that were published in July. And he also said he was sending the letter ahead of the publication of the refreshed National Planning Policy Framework, which he said would be this autumn. And of course, the draft revisions to the MPPF were published just before Christmas. And um, people in the planning and development sectors are eagerly awaiting the outcome of that consultation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what does the letter say about local plans and plan making?
1: Well, there's definitely a pro-development message in there and a plea to carry on plan making. Gove said he wanted to make clear his expectation that development should proceed on sites that are adopted in a local plan with full input from the local community, unless there are strong reasons why it cannot. He said council should be open and pragmatic in agreeing changes to developments where conditions mean that the original plan may no longer be viable, rather than losing the development wholesale or see it mothballed. So I mentioned earlier about the July announcements that included a consultation on making local plans, in the words of the government, simpler, faster to prepare and more accessible. And a key part of this was condensing local plan preparation to 30 months. In his letter, Gove said it is intention for the regulations, policy and guidance necessary for the preparation of the first new style local plans to be in place by autumn 2024, which is just a year away. And that's before a deadline of 30th of June 2025 for when councils have to submit a local plan under the proposed new system. He said that in the interim, though, councils should continue adopting ambitious local plans. He said that those without up-to-date local plans, so that means over five years old, are likely to be subject to the presumption in favour of sustainable development when placing applications. So that means that's when uh, the local housing supply policies are weakened, which makes councils more vulnerable to speculative applications and appeals. He reiterated the government's proposal when authorities have up to date local plans that they would not be subject to the five year housing land supply requirements in the MPPF. At the moment, those who don't have a five year housing land supply are subject to this presumption in favour of sustainable development, even if their local plan is up to date. What the government's saying is that when plans are up to date, then they're exempt from this penalty. And he said, as a result of that, Under the new system, a council that wants to benefit from this proposed exemption would need to start work on a new plan halfway through the five-year lifespan of an existing one. Meanwhile, there was an update on one of the biggest planning announcements in the last year, which was last December when the government proposed weakening the requirement for councils to meet their local housing need requirements. Gove said again the government wants to make clearer that local housing need is an advisory starting point for plan making and it's designed to support more effective and responsive plan making. He said any housing number put forward by a local authority would still need to be both evidence-based and tested by PINs at examination. So there's a bit of a steer there for councils that perhaps... Might prefer if they could um, pluck a figure out of thin air. That's that's not going to wash under the new system.
0: What else does the letter say?
1: There was some further advice in there for councils. He said authorities should make better use of small pockets of brownfield land by being more permissive, so more homes can be built more quickly giving more confidence and certainty to SME builders. So um, again, we hear this um, pro-Brownfield land development message from the government. He also reminded councils of several initiatives aimed at bolstering capacity and capability that were announced in July. One of those we covered on the podcast recently, this proposed new super squad of experts. There was also another interesting announcement, which I, I wasn't aware of, the government having previously made, that it's going to carry out a comprehensive national survey of all local planning authorities to give us a fuller understanding of the skills, challenges and shortages facing local government.
0: And uh, what might be the government's thinking here? Well,
1: it's not entirely clear, but it seems the government is again concerned about local plan delays, which have been an issue for almost two years now since the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson gave his um, infamous conference speech that suggested opposition to greenfield land development and following that a lot of councils paused work on their plans and that seems to have got worse since the government announced these um, MPPF changes last December where um, they proposed weakening the requirement for councils to meet their local housing need. So in the past 18 months we've had frequent exhortations from ministers and the chief planner for councils to carry on with their local plan work, but we still have these frequent problems.
0: It's not quite clear what the carrot or the or the stick is here that will um, change council's thinking.
1: No. Obviously, with local plan delays, we had Rachel McLean and the sort of ongoing row with Spelthorne Council in Surrey where she ordered it to stop withdrawing its local plan. So that's, I guess, an example of the government being quite robust where it comes to local plan delays but it remains to be seen if that's going to be a a more widespread approach.
0: But it is interesting, isn't it, to to hear Michael Gove saying that he wants councils to be pragmatic about schemes that maybe don't conform with the local plan for some reason or another, which might be associated with something about a, a plan policy that might have looked viable to impose when the plan was drawn up, but in current circumstances don't look viable. And to also hear him saying that the council should be more permissive on small sites this is possibly going to make or probably going to make applicants think that there are things that they that they've got the Secretary of State's backing to push a bit back at councils who are waving local plan policies at them or being um, resistant to applications on small brownfield sites.
1: Yes it's a bit reminiscent of um, during Covid when the government was giving out this this repeated message of councils being flexible when it comes to um, applying local policies. And, yeah, we certainly get that. You certainly get that sense here. Yeah. Especially with the um, reference to viability is an interesting one.
0: So I guess we'll have to just keep an eye on, on appeal decisions and see whether this kind of philosophy is it seems to be being applied by the planning inspector.
1: It'd be interesting to look out for any um, changes in approach.
0: Okay. Well, thanks very much for that, John. And uh, you've also... Got the uh, roundup of the other news highlights of the past couple of weeks?
1: Yes, that's right. My first big story is about the High Court quashing a planning permission by Mendip District Council in Somerset for a 300 home mixed use scheme in the town centre of Frome. The judge ruled that a poorly drafted local plan policy meant that a rival developer's challenge to the permission must succeed. Elsewhere, plans for 300 homes on a greenfield site, which were allocated as green belts in York City Council's long emerging local plan, have been approved by a local government minister who placed significant weight on the scheme's provision of new housing due to persistent under delivery in the area. And finally, Labour in government might tweak the government's standard method of assessing housing need to make sure the figures bite and councils meet their local requirements, the shadow planning minister Matthew Pennycook has said at the party's conference.
0: Okay, John, well, thanks very much for that. And of course, listeners can read more on all of these stories at planningresource.co.uk. Well, I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great. That's another few weeks summarised.
1: Yes, we'll be back with a bonus edition in a week's time, exploring how developers, landowners and planning authorities can best make use of the extra time they've been given to prepare for the government's biodiversity net gain requirements.
0: In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk our thanks to producer Inga Marsden from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening.
1: Goodbye.